Well, I trust that you can see that this psalm, Psalm 101, is about what it looks like for God's king to be committed to love and justice. This psalm discloses for us Jesus' resolve to live, rule, and reign in righteousness. This psalm teaches us that we must resolve to pursue righteousness and put away unrighteousness. And if you want a single sentence that summarizes the main idea of this psalm, here it is. Resolve to pursue righteousness and put away unrighteousness. Resolve to pursue righteousness and put away unrighteousness. Now, if you're a bit confused by the concepts of righteousness and unrighteousness, you should know that they're just kind of synonyms for right and wrong. Uh, Resolve to pursue what is right and reject what is wrong. We're going to study this psalm in three sections under three headings. Principal resolutions private resolutions, and public resolutions. Uh, Principal resolutions, which we find in verses 1 and 2, are are the resolutions out of which all the others flow. Uh, Those are the principal resolutions in verses 1 and 2. Private resolutions, which we find in verses 3 and 4, are David's resolutions, which guide his personal and private conduct. And then public resolutions we find in verses 5 through 8. These are resolutions which relate to how David is going to engage and rule over those under his care. And to be fair, there's a a significant amount of overlap between each of these kind of spheres, principal, private, public. But I trust that you can see that in the main, these sections are oriented in this general manner. Let's begin with our first point, David's principal resolutions. And as we do, let's read the first two verses again. Uh, Psalm 101, verses 1 and 2. A psalm of David. I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. O when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. Now, as we're reading through Psalm 101 on um, Monday night of this past week, I was reading through it with my, my family I asked my kiddos, okay, so what's this psalm about? So we read through it, and I said, so, so what do you think this psalm is about? And, and one of them very quickly chimed in and said, resolutions. I went, hmm, resolutions, that's interesting. Why, why do you say that? Uh, and, and my child said, well, because of all the I will statements. They're saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do that. Uh, and that seems exactly right, right? You'll notice there in verses 1 and 2, we've got four such I will statements. And as you scan your eyes throughout the rest of this psalm, you'll see more. Here, David, he He resolves to sing of steadfast love and justice. He he resolves to make music to the Lord. These two statements are, of course, a form of kind of parallelism, aren't they? They're saying the same thing in a slightly different way. Here David is saying that the song of his soul, the song that his soul will sing to the Lord, will be centered on steadfast love and justice. And these words, the word steadfast love, actually call to mind how God has committed himself to his people In his steadfast covenant love. The people of Israel knew God's steadfast love through the covenant that God made with Abraham and perpetuated through Isaac and Jacob. Indeed, God has even committed himself personally to David, the one who wrote this psalm, in his covenant love by forming a covenant with David and his descendants in 2 Samuel chapter 7. There God promised that one day, that promised David that one day one of his offspring would reign on his throne forever. And that covenant is one which should have made David's heart sing. And in fact, I think it did. Uh, After God announced and formed this covenant with David, David offered a beautiful prayer of gratitude to the Lord. God's promise 
to David was backed by his steadfast love, his relentless, unfailing love. And still, David promises here not merely to sing of love, but also to sing of justice. And really, this, this justice is going to be expanded, expounded, and worked throughout the rest of the psalm. And perhaps you've, you've been wondering, uh, why make resolutions in the first place? Right? Why make vows to live and rule in a certain way? David, and I would suggest that we, we make resolutions for at least two reasons. There may be more, but for now, let me just give two. First and foremost, we, we make resolutions to pursue righteousness because God has revealed his loving kindness to us. He has been generous and gracious. We live in light of his love. We, we love because he first loved us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. Our resolve to live righteous lives is a, a response to his great love for us in Jesus. Second, we make resolutions to pursue righteousness because we are representatives of our righteous God. God said, be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus 11.45 and 1 Peter 1.16. David was God's king, and as a ruler, he was to express God's rule. David was God's representative on earth. And though you and I, though we're not rulers in the same way as David was, we do, as I mentioned earlier, have various callings wherein we express, use, and, and wield authority. What is more, as Christians, we are representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ. We represent our God. After all, we were baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, 19, we resolve to pursue righteousness because we are ambassadors and representatives of the triune God. Here, David is expressing his desire to embody God's love and justice to God's people. Here he's resolving to live in response to God's love and justice toward him, which means that he will need to think often of God's dealings with him. If his living and dealings in the world are to be blameless, he will need to think often of how God has dealt with him lovingly and generously and justly. And you see the idea of blamelessness there in verse 2. You see there where David says that he will ponder the way that is blameless. That, that idea is actually uh, represented at the end of verse 2, where David says, I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. The words blameless and integrity uh, actually share some affinity with one another. Uh, they both express ideas of completeness or wholeness. And what's in view here is a, a, a righteousness, a righteousness uh, and a right conduct that has not been eroded. It's a complete righteousness, a whole righteousness. One scholar observed that this concept of, of blamelessness refers to a person living in a state in which no obvious charge or ready accusation could be brought against him or her. It usually describes loyalty to Yahweh and passion for him and observing his commands. And when the psalmist states that he will ponder the blameless way, he's declaring that he is looking for ways that he and Israel can better follow Yahweh. David is resolving to set his mind on perfect righteousness. He's purposing to live, in the words of Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, uh, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This is what David is purposing to do. How often... 
do we sin because we haven't been pondering the way that is blameless? You know, growing up, I, I must have heard uh, or been asked a thousand times, and deservedly so, what were you thinking? Uh, and, and the honest answer I could give was, uh, I wasn't, <laughs> right? Uh, we, we rush into so many things without taking time to think and to meditate, reflect on God's righteousness, to, to consider the end. Pondering the way that is blameless is, is really crucial for, for walking in integrity. It, it doesn't happen without it. We must be looking for ways to pursue righteousness. We must, must set before us the guide and goal of pursuing right and righteousness. So what does it look like proactively? To, to proactively, rather than reactively, pursue righteousness. I think that I'd suggest to you that it looks rather ordinary. Um, it, it looks like giving ourselves to regularly reading and meditating on and, and memorizing God's word. Uh, it, it looks like praying for yourself and others. It looks like learning about God and his love revealed in Christ by gathering with his people to hear good teaching, reading good, faithful books about our faithful God. It even looks like sharing the good news of God's righteousness revealed in Jesus Christ. It looks like deliberately helping another Christian grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think if we give ourselves to these things, we will have very little time to, for pursuing unrighteous things. And you know something else? Walking in integrity... Living a life where the song of our soul is the love and steadfast, uh, the, the steadfast love of God and the justice of God. Walking in integrity, it doesn't happen without him. It doesn't happen without our God. That's why David prays there in the middle of verse 2. Oh, when will you come to me? You know, we're, we're reading this psalm. And, and then that little petition feels rather kind of misplaced, doesn't it? It doesn't seem to fit with the rest. Right in the middle of these resolutions, there's this question, this petition, I think that David recognizes that he does not have the strength in and of himself to live according to these principal resolutions. Apart from God, he has no hope. He, he wants the Lord to come to him, to be with him, to strengthen him. And the same is true for us, isn't it, Christian? Do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 15? Uh, Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and, I'm, uh, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus was real honest with us, wasn't he? Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't say, you know, apart from me, you can do some good. Um, nope, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Uh, how, how many times have we kind of spun our wheels only to sink deeper into the mud? Because we're endeavoring to live out of our own strength rather than his, using our own means rather than his, depending on our own resolve rather than his righteousness. I think we should make this prayer ours. Oh God, when will you come to me? Oh God, please come to me. Give me the, the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ in my life to, to live and follow you. Give me the strength of your spirit. Please come to me. This has got to be the cry of our hearts, not just this day, but every day. Our principal resolution, in some respects, must be the one of complete dependence upon the Lord and his righteousness. Well, having considered David's principal resolutions, let's turn now and consider our, our second point, David's private resolutions. And as we do, let's read verses 3 and 4 now. Psalm 101, verses 3 and 4. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. 
I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Really, with the, um, with the tail end of verse 2, we begin to see the angle of kind of private resolutions emerge, don't we? But here they come into full bloom. As you saw with the first two verses, the importance of the heart rears its head once again. But a new theme is added to, added to it. Eyes. We could put these private resolutions in this way. David resolves to, uh, to eschew sin in sight and soul. You see that right there in the text, right? David eschews sin in sight. He resolves to set uh, before his eyes uh, nothing, anything that is worthless. He resolves to eschew sin in soul, which is taken up the remainder of verse 3. And really the whole of verse 4. This is a rejection of unrighteousness that we're, we're talking about earlier. David is purposing, he's resolving to reject wrong. David does not want the, the work of unfaithful men to cling to him. Verse 3. He doesn't want a perverse heart or, or to know evil. Verse 4. Now, this is a, a different way of stating his resolutions than he stated them in verses 1 and 2. In verses 1 and 2, there was an effort by David to, to really embrace the love and justice of God. To embrace holiness, integrity, and righteousness. Uh, verses 1 and 2 contained resolutions to pursue, to go after what is right. And here we see a resolve by David to, to push away from, from worthless works and perverse people to reject what is wrong. And I think we really need both angles in our pursuit of holiness and righteousness. This embrace of purity and eschewing of sin is carried over in the New Testament too. So the Apostle Paul puts it in the language of, of putting off and, and putting on in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Paul's in the middle of instructing the church of Colossae about how rich and wonderful the salvation that we have is in Jesus Christ. And he tells them to, to live out of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And what this means is they're to, to put on Jesus' righteousness and to put off unrighteousness. And in verses 3 and 4, you see there David purposes to guard his eyes, to guard his company, to guard his heart, and to guard his mind. To guard his eyes, company, heart, and mind. And I think we must be careful not to uh, kind of compartmentalize these resolutions from David. At, at one level, yes, we can kind of distinguish between our eyes, company, hearts, and minds. But at another level, these are areas, these areas of our lives are really all integrated and connected with one another. This is not an exhaustive list, but really an exemplary list of what it looks like to pursue righteousness in the whole of our lives. David uses strong language when he addresses each of these areas and ideas too. He doesn't want to set anything worthless before his eyes. That's a really good translation. Um, the idea here is that David doesn't want to set anything before his eyes that's useless, that, uh, that's good for nothing. He's talking about the internet. No, uh, I'm kidding. He's uh, kind of. Uh, this kind of resolution is striking, isn't it? Um, essentially, David is purposing to set before his eyes only things that are going to bring him profit or benefit. So I'm not here to outlaw television or movies or the internet for that matter. Um, I, I do think that we need to, and I'm, I'm preaching to myself here, I do think that we need to ask ourselves, what profit or benefit will this bring to me? Um, sometimes rest, relaxation, and, and recreation are a legitimate benefit. But we need to thoughtfully evaluate that and come to that conclusion 
instead of assuming it kind of on the front end of our recreational choices. David, he also speaks positively of hating the works of those who fall away. That language of hating is strong, isn't it? I mean, maybe as a child you were brought up not to use the word hate. Uh, Perhaps you were corrected for saying, I hate this meal, or I hate that person. Um, Here, David uses the word hate in a righteous way, in a godly way. Hatred is not always wrong. It's wrong when it's directed at those made in God's image, or when it's used to complain about God's good gifts, such as a meal. Uh, But the truth is, is that we must hate the things that God hates, and love the things that God loves. What David is saying here is that he's not going to, to keep company with those who are living lives which are unfaithful to the Lord. They're not going to be his close counselors and lead him to partake of unfaithful works too. Part of the implication of what David is saying here is that he's going to choose his company carefully. Now this is difficult, isn't it? Uh, We know that the Lord Jesus wants his people to be in the world because he wants us to be his his witnesses to the world. Uh, This means that believers need to be friends with unbelievers. We need to be real, significant, meaningful friends. We need to be the kinds of friends, neighbors, and co-workers that those who don't know the Lord Jesus will come to for counsel. We need to be the kind of people that those who don't know Jesus will come into our offices and to our living rooms and pour out our, their hearts to us, asking us to pray for them. We need to be those kinds of friends. That means we need to be in this world in a real, meaningful, and significant way. Still, The Lord Jesus does not want his followers to be of the world. Uh, He he does not want the the morality, or perhaps I should say immorality, of the world to cling to his people, to kind of glom on to us, to to weigh us down. Uh, Part of the way in which we avoid unrighteousness or reject what is wrong is by keeping righteous company. Uh, We need to make sure that we are surrounding ourselves with believers who love us enough to say, you know, I'm not sure what you did back there or said back there was right. Uh, And we need to stop being so easily offended by brothers and sisters who say, I think you're wrong. I mean, let's be honest, we're wrong an awful lot, aren't we? If we want to stop being wrong so often, uh, we need others to help us recognize when we've been wrong. A long time ago, a mentor said to me, Mike, don't defend yourself. Uh, Close your mouth. And listen when you're being criticized. Uh, Even if your critic is overstating his case, there's probably something in there you need to hear. And that kind of correction tells me that I wasn't listening. Uh, I I need to close my mouth more often. Some of you probably know that. Um, if If we don't want the works of the unfaithful to cling to us, then we positively do want the words and works of the faithful to cling to us. Part of that comes from being willing to be shaped by brothers and sisters who love us enough and are courageous enough to say to proud people like us, hey, I I think what you did back there was wrong. And we probably even need to invite others to criticize us. Uh, Last week, I was was so encouraged by the humility of one brother in our church family basically saying to me, do you think think what I said was okay? Okay. Um, Doesn't that take a lot of humility to ask a question like that? Doesn't it take trust in God's grace and resting in our acceptance through Jesus to invite another brother or sister in our lives 
to, to give us criticism. I'm so grateful for the faith and the humble example of that brother, and I'm praying for faith and humility like his. Let me just usher in a special word to parents here, too. If your children, your child points out some sin in you, please don't take that as a threat to your authority. If your child points out some sin in you, don't take it as a threat to your authority. Welcome the correction of your children as a gift from the Lord. If they correct you, you may need to stop correcting them for a moment and prayerfully consider what they have to say. They're probably putting their finger on something in your life. Children, youth, young adults, let me, let me return the favor. Um, young people, when your parents correct you, let me encourage you to close your mouths and to listen to the wisdom of your parents. Just as you, you are a real good gift uh, of God to them. So they are a real good gift of God to you. Be wise and accept correction. Uh, the, the Proverbs teach us that he is, he is on the path of life who heeds instruction. But he who ignores reproof goes astray. We all, young and old, need to accept and invite more correction in our lives. And if you're thinking about someone else, as I said that, you're kind of missing the point. We all need to accept and invite correction in our lives. Uh, look, put your nose in verse 4 again. You see there, we see the emergence of heart and mind again. David bans from his heart and mind perversity and evil. And this teaches us just how deep the darkness can reach. This speaks truly to our human experience and existence. If you're here today and, and you're not a believer or a follower of the Lord Jesus, I'm sure that you could confirm that evil thoughts, they, they turn up in your mind from time to time. Uh, you don't want them, but there they are. They just suddenly appear. Doesn't this tell us that these resolutions are a lot easier said than done? Indeed, even now, we're, we're, we're beginning to see that though these are private resolutions by King David, he's going to come into contact with others in this world who are struggling or who are going to kind of evoke struggles within his own heart. As God's king, he has to reflect God's righteousness in his realm. And this means he needs to be resolved to encourage and reward faithfulness while at the same time refusing and punishing unfaithfulness. Let's turn now consider our third point, David's public Resolutions, And here I want to read for us uh, verses 5 through 8. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Now, I think we could work our way through these phrases, um, these, these verses, phrase by phrase, with much profit. But I think there are actually only a few key features of these verses that we must really zero in on to grasp their thrust. First, we can note that the resolutions, they continue, don't they? The, the I wills, the, the vows, as in the previous verses, they're strewn throughout here. 
Second, and, and this is really the major difference between what has gone before, this entire section is oriented toward others. Uh, David is worried about neighbors, he's worried about wicked men and evildoers. Conversely, uh, he is encouraged by the faithful. He even promises to deal favorably with the faithful in the land. You see that in verse 6. Who are those faithful ones? Well, he tells us there are those who walk in blamelessness. There, there are those who, like their king, practice righteousness. And it is the faithful who are welcomed into the king's presence and have the privilege of ministering, of serving him. Third, these resolutions require David to take some action in, in, a, in some form or another. To take action in some form or another. David will destroy, you see there in verse 5, destroy those who slander. He will put away, he'll remove from his presence the proud, also in verse 5. This is not all that different from what he says about those who practice deceit and utter lies in verse 7. There is, however, a major contrast between David's actions toward the faithful of verse 6 and the wicked or the evildoers, verse 8. The faithful have the privilege of dwelling with David in his house, which is in the city of the Lord, by the way. Uh, the wicked, which is a synonym for evildoers, will be destroyed. They'll be cut off from the city of the Lord. This is how David is purposing to publicly rule in his realm, or we could say in the kingdom of God. This is how Jesus will rule in his kingdom too. Now, many of us are uh, perhaps sitting here thinking to ourselves, well, this is really rich coming from David, right? Those of you who know the story of, of David's life uh, from the Bible probably know that though this is uh, maybe how David began his rule, his reign, it wasn't the way he actually ruled, uh, how his rule was carried out every day. I mean, uh, the women of our congregation are acutely aware of this, I think, right now. They're studying through a particularly uh, challenging section of 2 Samuel. Uh, many of our women's small groups are in the middle of chapters 11 to, to 14, which are some of the darkest moments of David's reign. Those chapters cover David's coveting another man's wife, taking her, committing adultery with her, and covering up her pregnancy through having her husband killed. Uh, those chapters also reveal that David has some real worthless fellows, even in his own house, and uh, that he doesn't have the best counselors, which means that he wasn't really all that faithful to these vows. I mean, I can see how, if you know David's story, you, you might think that these words are the words of a hypocrite. Uh, the story of David's life revealed that he did not always sing of God's love and justice, verse 1. He, he did not always keep the way that is blameless. He did not always walk with integrity of heart in his house. Verse 2. Sometimes he set his eyes on worthless things. And not only that, but he employed men in sinful ways and their sinful works have clung to the story of his life. We still have it, don't we? Uh, his heart was perverse from time to time. And he knew evil. Verse 4. David didn't merely slander his neighbor. He slaughtered his neighbor. Only... Only a haughty and arrogant heart, a heart that thinks he's entitled to whatever he wants, could do such evil. Verse 5. I mean, his cover-up of Bathsheba's pregnancy was an act of deceit. Verse 7. You, you get the point, right? David, the righteous and resolute king who wrote this psalm, didn't keep this psalm. But, before we sit in judgment on David... And let's be honest, we are sorely tempted to sit in judgment on David. How many of us here, even within these past few minutes, 
have had a haughty heart toward David. Before we sit on judgment on David, we need to be honest about our own hearts. Uh, who, who here can honestly say that they've never slandered anyone? Who here can honestly say that they've never been haughty or proud? Haven't we all thought that we're better than someone else? Maybe you've thought, I should be giving that report. I should be leading that Bible study. I should be preaching that sermon. Who here is not guilty of deceit? Who here hasn't lied? Before we sit in judgment on David, we need to be honest about our own hearts. And you know something else? Before we sit in judgment on David, we need to remember that this, Psalm 101, this is God's inerrant, inspired, infallible word, which means that this psalm sits in judgment on us. And here's what's incredibly convicting and comforting. Though David failed to be the king who truly embodied this psalm and lived it his whole life through, and though every single one of his sons failed to keep this, song, uh, this psalm, there was one who was faithful to it. There was a king who did, and his name is Jesus. We have, we have the wonderful record of his life in the New Testament Gospels. And as we, as we read through those records, we discover that, that Jesus was perfectly righteous. He was perfectly blameless. He was the son of David. He was the king who made these vows and kept them. Those who saw and witnessed Jesus' life confirmed that he knew no sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the Apostle Paul essentially tells us that Jesus, in the words of verse 4, he knew nothing of evil. Do you realize that Jesus, as a faithful Jew, and as God's true king, he prayed and sang this psalm throughout the whole of his life? Do you realize that this psalm was on the lips of Jesus? It was in his mouth. These are resolutions, vows that he made and kept for us who haven't. This was the song of his soul, the steadfast love and justice of God. Jesus not only pondered the way that is blameless, he was blameless, perfectly blameless. And since Jesus is the true king, that means he fully intends to rule this way in his kingdom. And this should lead us to ask, how can we enter his kingdom then? How do we become those who may dwell with him and minister to him? It won't be through our blamelessness. We know that because of our tongues, we deserve to be utterly destroyed in his righteous wrath. Verse 5. We know that because of our lies and deceit, we do not deserve to dwell in his house. Verse 7. We know that because of our sin, we deserve to be cut off from the city of the Lord forever. Verse 8. So how do we become those people who dwell with him and minister to him? It won't be through our blamelessness. It can't be through our blameless walk. Because the truth is, if we're depending upon our own works and righteousness, we're going to be like that man that we read about earlier in the service from Matthew 22. Remember how he turned up to that wedding feast without a wedding garment. He didn't have on the right clothes. And so he was cast into utter darkness. You see, we don't have the righteousness that is required to enter God's kingdom. We need to be dressed in a righteousness that is not our own. 
We need to be dressed in a righteousness of the only one who has ever lived and kept this psalm. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. See, we walk in a blameless way by placing our faith in him. By calling him our king. Ceasing to depend upon our good works and to depend wholly, completely upon his. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you to come to him today in repentance and faith. The truth is, is that we have all sinned. Every single one of us here today has sinned. You know that in your own heart. You and I, we are sinners. We've all done what our first parents, what Adam and Eve have done. We have all chosen to reject God's blameless way and to live for ourselves. That's what sin is. It's rejecting God, the one who made us and has authority over us as the author of our lives and living our own way. And because God is holy, righteous, and just, as embodied in the resolutions of this psalm, Psalm 101, he cannot let sin go unpunished. And in love, God sent his one and only most beloved son to live the righteous life that this psalm describes. That's who Jesus is. Not only did Jesus live the righteous life that this psalm requires, but in his great love for sinners like you and me, Jesus died taking the punishment that this psalm describes. He endured the destruction of God's wrath against sin. He was cut off from the land of the living. On the cross, Jesus died bearing the judgment that our sins deserve. But that is not all. For three days after his death, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating him and proving to us all that his life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. And now Jesus calls us to come to him in repentance and faith. He calls us to believe that he lived for us, the righteous life that we have not lived. He calls us to believe that he died for us, the death and punishment that our sins deserve. He calls us to believe that he was raised again from the grave for the forgiveness of our sins. All of those who come to the Lord Jesus in repentance and faith have the sure promise of being looked on with favor, of being counted as faithful, because Jesus was faithful for us all of those who come to the Lord Jesus in repentance and faith have the promise of dwelling with him for all eternity. All of those who come to the Lord Jesus in repentance and faith have the promise of ministering to him and serving him in his presence for all eternity. All of those who come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith have the privilege and calling of walking in his way. The way that is blameless. Not because we're trying to save ourselves. Because we can't but because we have been saved by him. And so the song of our soul has become his covenant love toward us, his justice and just dealing toward us in punishing our sins in Jesus. Friend, I want to urge you to come to Jesus Christ today in repentance and faith. And if you want to know more about what it means to love him and to live for him, then please do come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you more about this good news, about what it means to live for the Lord Jesus because he has loved you and given his life for you. We, we began this, uh, this morning by imagining Psalm 101 as, as being the, the resolutions of a national leader as he began his service in office. We've reflected on the fact that Psalm 101 it was the resolutions and vows of David and the kings who followed after him. Resolutions to pursue righteousness and to reject unrighteousness. 
I, I want us to conclude by thinking about the resolutions of Psalm 101 on a more personal level. I, I am persuaded that believers of the Lord Jesus Christ ought to resolve to live according to the righteous standards embodied in Psalm 101. We all need to rightly recognize that we are not kings in ancient Israel. Nevertheless, this psalm teaches us that we ought to be resolved to represent our king, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who perfectly made and kept these vows. Now, you may be thinking that perhaps a bit like your New Year's resolutions, uh, I can't keep these. Why make these resolutions in the first place? Uh, it's true that we will not be able to keep these resolutions with the perfection of Christ. Our good and loving Father knows that about us. He's known that about us for quite a while. Still, he says to us, be holy, for I am holy. He's not asking us for perfect righteousness. He's already given that to us in Jesus Christ. He's asking us to depend upon the strength of the Holy Spirit to live and love like him so that the world may know that we are his disciples. He is calling us to portray in our daily lives the ethic of Christ's kingdom so that he might call others to come and know our king. The point of our pursuit of righteousness is not so much about us as it is about a faithful testimony to our righteous God. Listen to what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. Listen to how he exhorts believers to be holy and to pursue righteousness. And listen for the reason. Listen to why he exhorts them to pursue what is right and reject what is wrong. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that, here is the reason, here is the reason I've been telling you to pursue the right and to reject the wrong, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, our righteous resolve is finally about the glory of God. This is why God made you and remade you in the image of Jesus Christ for his glory. So give him your righteous resolve because he gave you his righteous son. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for your generous gift in Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that he was righteous his whole life through. And that, that he lived these vows for us. Thank you for his, his compassion upon sinners. We see how we have failed to be compassionate, even in reflecting on his compassion. We thank you for his, his resistance 
against the evil one, against Satan, resisting temptation where we have been bent and broken and fallen to it. Father, we thank you that he was obedient to do your will, even to the point of death on a cross, where we so often have said no to you. And Father, we give you thanks for his resurrection from the grave, that we can be assured of forgiveness through him. Father, we ask that today that we would be resolved to live out of response to his righteousness, one for us. Father, we pray that you'd help us to hide ourselves in him, trusting in him each day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, brothers and sisters, our, our closing song is number 338, which is how firm a foundation it's found in your hymnals. Turn to, go ahead and turn to number 338. 338. This morning from Psalm 101, we've, we've thought about how we do not depend upon our own strength or or trust in our own righteousness, and instead we call out to the Lord to, to come and help us. Uh, we depend upon Jesus' righteousness. Verse 2, particularly the conclusion, reminds us that, uh, that our God will uphold us by His righteous, omnipotent hand. So let's sing number 338, How Firm a Foundation. Please stand as we sing. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you for refuge to Jesus have fled. Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God, and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous omnipotent hand. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be my supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus and lean for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Praise God. May the Lord be with your spirit. Grace and peace be with you. Amen. Please be seated.